Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. From the New England News Collaborative and America Amplified, this is a special on the history of racism in New England. Today we look at how New England's history, often told from a white perspective, has failed us all. Well, it completely distorts what America is and who America is. It completely undermines the contributions that were made and never taught in history. We'll talk about how this distortion lets us cling to New England's abolitionist past and hide a darker story of racism, slavery, and segregation. It's very hard for most people when they have learned a version of the history of their family or their community to learn that the truth is much more difficult than that. And also on the show... It actually goes beyond racism for indigenous people. It actually goes to dehumanization because systems have been put in place to eradicate us uh, throughout history. That's coming up after the break. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. And I'm Tracy Griffith, your co-host. So it's going to be a little different today on Next. First of all, we're very lucky to have Tracy joining us as co-host. Tracy is a professor of media studies, journalism, and digital arts at St. Michael's College in Vermont. And she's going to be with us for four specials on racism in New England. These specials are a collaboration between the New England News Collaborative and America Amplified. So today we're going to be focusing on the history of racism in the region. Before the show, we asked for your questions and thoughts, and we heard from listener Lisa Anderson. She is white, and she grew up in New England. She wrote, New England has largely been viewed as a progressive part of the country. And she says New Englanders are loath to admit to racist views, in part because of this. Another listener, Debbie Relitz from North Granby, Connecticut, has a similar view. She says, I know that I and others have fallen into the trap that as a northern state, we are less racist. But digging into the issue here in our town of Granby, I'm discovering we have regular serious problems. Morgan, I know that you grew up in New England. So what was your perspective when you were younger? Yeah, I think there were kind of two things happening at the same time. I think that I definitely had that perception of you know, I'm growing up in New England. It's a part of the North. The North were the free states where, you know, black people would go to be free. It was where abolitionists lived. But I think there was also one of my favorite books as a kid was Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, which is based in the segregated South during the Jim Crow era. And I think even though that was a book based in the South, I understood racism and segregation, they're a whole country problem. It's not just like a Southern problem. So Tracy, you grew up in the Midwest, and I'm wondering what your perception of New England was when you came to the Northeast. 
Well, it's interesting, right? Because coming from the Midwest, I had heard about Boston, right? Boston as kind of the epitome of New England. And I'd always heard that Boston was extremely racist. And I think part of that came from, you know, the problems with desegregation and forced busing and those kinds of things. And so I had kind of had that in my mind. And then I also had kind of a concern of, you know, this region of the country, particularly Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, very, very white. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be one of a few people of color in in this region or in this area. And I was really kind of worried about what that would mean for me. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think one of our goals today is to kind of see how we can bridge the gap between those things, right? To like get from this misunderstanding and this myth about our history in New England as on the right side of history and to actually show New England's complicity and major involvement in slavery and also white supremacy and then bring us to the point where we can see how that connects to our region today. Right. But it's important to remember that it doesn't just begin with slavery, right? That it begins with the treatment of Native Americans when the white settlers arrived in America. And so Don Stevens is the chief of the Nulhegan Band of the Kusuk Abenaki Nation in Vermont's Northeast Kingdom. And he joins us now to talk about the experiences of the Abenaki people in Vermont. Chief Stevens, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tracy. As we noted in the introduction to this segment, the history of white supremacy in New England begins not with slavery, but with European colonization. Chief Stevens, is this legacy felt by members of the Abenaki tribe? Uh, Yes, it is. And it's not just uh, racism. It actually goes beyond racism for indigenous people. It actually goes to dehumanization. We're often dehumanized because systems have been put in place to eradicate us uh, throughout history. It started with first contact when Europeans gave us disease blankets. Uh, We were enslaved and put on ships and brought back to the European homelands to be put on display. We were herded like animals and, and put on reservations and often outright slaughtered because of who we were. And even in modern history, our women, you know, were sterilized through the eugenics programs. Uh, our children were taken away and put in boarding schools to, to remove the Indian out of them. Yeah, it was very close to home. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the eugenics program and how it has affected you personally, because I know that it, it was evident within your own family. My grandmother was listed in the eugenics survey as a cripple, and uh, she changed her name three times in order to avoid the sterilization program. Uh, She was born as Lillian and married as Pauline and died as Delia. And UVM uh, Harriet Abbott, she was charged with trying to find people that should be part of the program and uh, as people change their names she would have to track down are they a different person are they the same person you know so it affected us and because she really didn't want to be known as Abenaki or even native I mean we knew about it within our own family we talked about it but because she lived through that she definitely didn't want us to have that happen to us so before my mother passed away, I wanted to ensure that she actually could stand tall and proud and, and dance in a circle before she died uh, as a Abenaki person. And uh, it, was, it was very personal to me and uh, very personal to a lot of people that you would be tracked and 
potentially sterilized just because they felt you unworthy of breeding. I mean, it's, it's very powerful. Very powerful. Back in 2011, uh, the Abnaki tribe won state recognition here in Vermont. And that was, you know, only nine years ago. What did it mean to finally be recognized? And from your perspective, why, why didn't that happen sooner? Well, I think it's bittersweet. We're the only people that have to follow some process in order to determine how Indian we are, right? And I, and I tell some of our colleagues uh, that only dogs, horses, and Indians need papers <laughs> to show their pedigree in the United States. No other race has to prove uh, who they are or be required uh, to go through such a process. I mean, we were elated that we were able to do that to help our children. Like, being recognized or having a, an Indian card does not define who we are or make us who we are. We're already that. It's just a legal status definition that we have to live under in order to help our people survive and uplift them. Because if you're not recognized, then you're extinct. So we were legally extinct, according to the law, until 2011, even though we were very much here and vibrant. Is there a sense that the history and the culture of Abnaki tribe, particularly in this area of Vermont, has it been lost when you're, when you're hearing stories about Vermont and the way that Vermont came to be? I think to a point. I think the history hasn't been lost. Uh, obviously, history is history. I mean, most of us kept oral traditions where Europeans kept uh, more on paper. But I, I think the culture, for sure, when you're afraid to be known as who you are, because you could be sterilized or other uh, detrimental things happen to you. I think that um, people only then celebrate the culture within their own family units and things get lost as people decide to be assimilated or because of the society assimilating you. And part of our job is, is piecing those things back together. As a state, as a region, New England, we continue to face stereotypical depictions athletic team names and mascots, and and all of that is very rooted in the history of white supremacy. And so, for example, just this month, the Rutland Herald reported that the Rutland City School Board of Commissioners heard arguments in favor of, among other things, changing the Rutland Raider mascot. And that mascot has been said to perpetuate Native American stereotypes. It is 2020. You know, why are we still having these conversations? People think it's okay to dress up with war paint and and native regalia and do tomahawk chops or create like the you know mascots and i think they just look at it as not the same if you you created a another team with another ethnicity and then i mean look at all the stuff that's happened with the blackface and all of the stars you know uh, being removed because they might have uh, put blackface on but people can go to stadiums and put red face on red paint and it's no big deal it's like uh we're we're not treated in the same manner or looked at in the same way that's that's been throughout history when it comes to the westerns the old westerns where native people were always looked down upon as being drunken savage people and you know, in sideshows, and people have just grown up as that we are less than human, 
and it's okay to treat us differently. And, and I think that's the same reason why we can't self-declare. People still, even though we've proven ourselves as uh, recognized through a European government process, we still have people out there saying, you're white, you're French, you're race-shifting, you're wannabe Indians, you're this, you're that. And they're just bigots and racists. I mean, who has to go through those kind of processes to prove who they are, which we've already done? Right, but they still there's still racism and hate out there against us. How, how do we move forward from this? We have to bring everybody back to the table of creation. I mean, in the Abenaki culture, we were all known as El Noba, human beings, and uh, we were on that strand or the web of life. But since we could destroy things, we would have to be responsible. And I think people need to communicate with those other entities on that web of life, whether it be through protest or peacemakers, if you educate. Because the way I look at things is that people, when they don't know about something, then they fear it. So ignorance is there. Um, So when you remove the ignorance and educate people about what things really are, they tend less to fear them and maybe understand your point of view. I think we have to understand each other's point of view in order to make positive change. We need to educate about why it's not okay um, and make sure that it doesn't become an ingrained thing that's automatic, like implicit bias, that's it's just done automatically. I mean, that's, that's even done in the state house. When we got recognized, they specifically put in our bill no land claims or casinos. So they assume, based on stereotypes, that we're going to create a casino and 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 gamble, right? I mean, that's a stereotype. That that isn't something that should be written into any bill. How can the average school teacher or parent or bus driver or you know average citizen here in New England help with this kind of recovery? How do they do away with the biases that we have been taught and move forward? Teachers are in a perfect position to be able to educate children on who the Abenaki people are and the culture. And Abenaki people have so much knowledge and information to give when it comes to the environment, it comes to history, it comes to many, many things. But there's no mandate for teachers to teach about Native people here. And then to compound that, is having the resources to be able to go into the schools and be able to teach. And that's the only way that it's going to change. Don Stevens is chief of the Nolhegan Band of the Kusuk Abnaki Nation. Chief Stevens, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Adio nanawalmazi. That means goodbye, thank you, and take care. We'll be back after a break, and we'll shift gears to talk about just how involved New England was in the slave trade. This is a New England News Collaborative special with America Amplified. I'm Tracy Griffith. And I'm Morgan Springer. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. And I'm Tracy Griffith. The voice you're about to hear is Anthony Marquez, an activist and filmmaker from Newport, Vermont. When you're being taught black history by white people, 
and then you learn as a child what white people did to your ancestors, there's that instant resentment of like, why am I supposed to respect you? Why am I supposed to even listen to what you have to tell me when, again, our ancestors, the difference between our ancestors is one was oppressed and one was doing the oppressing. And so you learn at a young age to, as a black man, or at least I learned that um, there's a lot of pain within in history. And then when you try to make it all, again, make sense at a young age, you realize a lot of things don't make sense at all. So that was Anthony Marquez. He's in a new video featuring young activists in New England. You can check out that video from the New England News Collaborative at nenc.news. And we're going to dig into that painful history that Anthony just referenced. In the show, we've been talking about this false narrative, this idea of New England as a region on the right side of history when it comes to slavery. Now, James DeWolf Perry VI grew up in Massachusetts, and he says as a kid, he knew there was some slavery in the region. But the impression I got was that it was early, that it was mild, and that it ended fairly soon, and that New England quickly became uh, a region of abolitionists, none of which, of course, turns out to be true. In reality, slavery was a huge part of New England's economy. And later in his 30s, James Dwolf Perry and a group of relatives began working on a documentary about their Rhode Island ancestors and how they were involved in the slave trade. And the documentary came out in 2008. It's called Traces of the Trade, a story from the Deep North. And it was directed by James's relative, Katrina Brown. James joins us to talk about the documentary and his family's journey. And we start our conversation with his DeWolf ancestors' involvement in the slave trade. So it turns out that the DeWolf family were the leading slave traders in the history of the United States. Uh, They lived in Bristol, Rhode Island about 200 years ago. And across three generations, particularly in the hands of my fifth great-grandfather, James DeWolf, they sent out at least a hundred slaving voyages from Rhode Island to the west coast of Africa and then to the Caribbean or to the United States, either the northern United States or especially the south. What goes through your mind as you're learning this history? At first it was easy for me because the first I was aware of was that our family had been involved in the slave trade in a minor way. Uh, So when the possibility of doing this documentary came up, for me it wasn't a deeply emotional issue initially. I was very committed to the idea that we should explore the history of one ordinary New England family and its connections to the slave trade so that people could understand just how extensive slavery and complicity in slavery were in the North. It was only after we got underway and started doing more research for the film that it became increasingly clear that the DeWolfs were nothing like an ordinary New England family. Yeah, so I just want to remind our listeners of your full name, which is James DeWolf Perry the Sixth. Now, James DeWolf, as we've talked about, was one of the most active DeWolfs in the slave trade. You said he's your fifth great-grandfather, So does it feel different for you being so closely named after him? It certainly feels different to me. That really, to me, enhances the sense of personal connection. And I actually value that. 
In my experience, it's very easy to dismiss something that happened 150 or 200 years ago. After all, no one I've ever met had anything to do with the slave trade. But it's a reminder that we do carry legacies in many ways. Just as our family name is still passed down, all of us are impacted by this in a wide variety of ways. My family in my branch isn't wealthy because of the slave trade, but we still have, for example, the kind of education that that money originally started buying. And so I personally appreciate the fact that my family name alone means that I have to wrestle with this history. And in fact, when I had a son a few years ago, uh, I gave him the traditional family name. He will have to wrestle with both the good and the bad in our family history, and I think that's important. So he's James DeWolf Perry Seventh. That's right. So I want to go back to Rhode Island um, and what made the state the heart of the slave trade in North America, because I think a lot of us don't know about that. So can you talk a bit about that? More than anything else, it's the fact that Rhode Island was small and naturally gravitated towards a maritime economy. And the slave trade, while only one part of the global maritime economy at that time, was an unusually risky but an unusually profitable venture. All of New England was involved in the slave trade. All the people whose businesses fed the slave trade itself. It's also all the people in New England who owned enslaved people. And it's an astonishing percentage when you look at it. Ordinary family farms, there would often be one or more enslaved people. And that was often how people got ahead. One thing I'm always discouraged by are the number of white people who say that their ancestors were in New England in colonial times, uh, but are certain they're not connected to slavery because their ancestors were not wealthy. And in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. You had mentioned privilege in terms of education, and I want to play this tape from the documentary. It captures this just amazing interaction when all of your relatives who are involved in the film are sitting around and eating, and one of your relatives says this. Uh, Let's take a listen. My, my going to Harvard wasn't, wasn't about privilege. Mm-hmm. I earned oh. my way to Harvard. You don't think going to Harvard is a privilege? Mm. I think going to Harvard is a privilege, but I'd have gone to Harvard if I had grown up in a, in a very different family. I never could have imagined going you to Harvard. You would have or you wouldn't have? I would have. Yeah. I would have, because I taught myself to read before I was four years old. I worked my butt off at every level at school. I was... Uh, but you can't assume if you were in a different family that you would have been in an environment right. that would have nurtured that. I, I would have. I had plenty of classmates at Harvard who <coughs> were in, in different families. It was schools where it was nurtured. If they could. I, yeah, I, yeah, I, your dad also went to Harvard? Okay. Yeah, exactly. My dad worked for the phone company, and he went to night school to get his college degree. For me, it was the University of Oregon. Um, go Ducks. But I, I just, I, I, you know, when I sit back, I don't think you're lying. I don't. But when I think, okay, your dad went to Harvard, that's an up. Didn't most of our parents go to, where did your dad go? I'm, I'm either third or fourth generation Princeton. So Princeton, Princeton, Brown. Harvard, 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 Yeah, Brown. we're representative of white Night America, school. aren't Wait. we? <laughs> Night school, Harvard. Harvard. Okay, so do you feel that you and your relatives have personally benefited in life because of your ancestors' involvement in the slave trade? 
I think we have. I think it varies a lot uh, depending on which branch of the family you're talking about. That was my father speaking at the beginning of the clip about going to Harvard. And he was, of course, absolutely wrong to suggest that the type of family he was in didn't have any impact on that. What's really striking to me about this clip, though, isn't just the types of privilege that we have to bear in mind as we look at how we've been impacted by our nation's history, all of us, but how we think about privilege. We always have a tendency, in my experience, to think about and focus on the types of privilege we don't have, and though not to pay attention to the types that we do have. Well, yeah, I just want to jump in here and say I did not realize that the person at the beginning of the clip is your father. And do you and he continue to navigate your differences in opinion and approach to racial justice, to privilege, to all these things? Well, the thing I feel really fortunate about with my father is that we don't actually see things all that differently. And in fact, my father very quickly after we filmed that scene realized the mistake that he'd made. The documentary ends with you and your relatives kind of deciding you're going to take different approaches in pursuit of racial justice. Your personal approach is all about what we're talking about right now, history, right? And rewriting history and acknowledging the truths of our history. So can you talk a bit about that? So for me, the answer to what to do today is very much focused on education and dialogue. I always start with the history because the history is not what we've been taught to understand when it comes to slavery and race. And by undoing what we've learned, by tackling those myths, it becomes much easier to understand how our society got where it is today. I am constantly seeing people unable to have good conversations about race now and getting bogged down in, for example, partisan differences because there's not an ability to agree on a common set of facts about racial inequality and about the roots of racial inequality. They, those roots don't make sense if you believe we have a certain fairly rosy history in which slavery was limited mostly to the South, in which it was limited mostly to wealthy white plantation owners and had, in the common telling of our national history, a very limited impact on our national economic development. When it becomes clear how broad-based complicity of slavery was throughout the country, and when it becomes clear how important it was to the social, political, and economic development of the country, it becomes much easier to understand how families are impacted by this history today in ways that we need to address. James DeWolf Perry is a relative of the DeWolf family. His Rhode Island ancestors were among the largest slave traders in U.S. history. He served as a historical consultant for the documentary Traces of the Trade about his ancestors and co-founded a nonprofit with the film director called Tracing Center on Histories and Legacies of Slavery. James, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Now we're going to hear from Amara Ifeji. She's a recent high school graduate from Bangor, Maine.
As a kid living in Maine, I think I have just been taught from an early age that I have to recognize that I am a black individual because there's just been a lot of times where I thought that it was just my mother being, you know, overbearing, overprotective and things like that. I would ask to go to sleepovers and she would say no. I would ask to go to a friend's house or maybe just like to a park and it might be creeping closer to 6 p.m. when the streetlights come on and she would say absolutely not. Now growing up and recognizing that that was not overbearing nature, that was not her being overprotective, that was her raising a black child. In Maine, there are many sundown towns where in which I just really cannot be found after a certain time. Just last week, I had gone on a drive with my friends, um, and we were coming home from this beautiful lake, and we were in Waldo County, which is very rural, and I actually saw three Confederate flags just blowing in the wind. That was Amara Ifeji from Bangor, Maine recorded for a New England News Collaborative video project. We also got an email from listener Bob Moore in East Kingston, New Hampshire. He asked us to explore sundown towns. He said, quote, The history of sundown towns has been written about and is a sort of under-the-radar subject that echoes white supremacy in the northern states. He says, There are examples of sundown towns in New England, including Newmarket, New Hampshire, and Derry, New Hampshire, unquote. So, okay, a sundown town was, or it still is, a community that was purposefully white, that kept black people from moving there, and in some situations, from even traveling through or visiting there safely. And there were sometimes explicitly racist signs posted on the outskirts of these towns, indicating that black people were simply not welcome. These towns existed across the country. Right. And a former University of Vermont professor, James W. Lowen, he wrote about them in his book, Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism. He's here today to talk about his research for that book. So why that name Sundown exactly? What what does that entail? Well, it means that black folks can work in town, but they can't live in town. Sometimes they make exceptions for live-in servants, but that doesn't count because they're living in a white household. Uh, they can't live independently in town. There are sundown towns, let's say, maybe even today, and certainly 10 years ago, where African-Americans could stay in motels overnight, but the possibility of their buying a house or renting a house and living in the town was very low. We often think of these kinds of situations happening in the South. What about the Northeast? I regret that during my 20 years in New England teaching at the University of Vermont, I never stopped at sundown towns. They weren't on my radar. I had no idea. I thought they were a unique and and very unusual occurrence, that that there were only maybe 50 of them across the whole country. I now know there's more like 10,000 of them across the whole country. They do exist in New England. First of all, there's a bunch of them around New York City, and I believe a bunch around Boston. Darien, Connecticut, which is one of the richest suburbs of New York City, uh, became quite famous as a sundown town in 1947 because of the movie uh, Gentleman's Agreement. So there are rich suburbs, and they're also rich, or somewhat rich, vacation spots, both on the coast, such as the New Hampshire coast, and in the mountains. I would like to read you a quote from Burlington, Connecticut, not Burlington, Vermont, where I live, but Burlington, Connecticut, I think this quote by itself, which came to me by email, 
confirms Burlington as, as pretty much a sundown town. Can I read it to you? Of course. All right. Quote, uh, my parents, when I was growing up, had a friend named John, who everybody called Bootsy, who lived in nearby Waterbury. He'd come over to hang out or play cards or whatever. He always made a habit of leaving before sunset. And if he could not, he would spend the night on the couch. I recall conversations that the reason he needed to stay was because in earlier years, whenever he would drive in or out of town, the police would stop and harass him, detain him for questioning, or pull him over and run his license and plates. Comments were made to the effect that being a black man in Burlington after dark, he couldn't be up to any good, okay? Well, I think that nails Burlington as a sundown town. However, I would like to go there and do some more research, talk with some of the older people, see what they can remember with details like that before I'm sure. And this was from a Burlington, Connecticut resident. That's right. Okay. So were a lot of these sundown towns, was it only black people who were affected? No, it was not. As I mentioned, for elite suburbs, including suburbs of Boston, uh, Darien, Connecticut, most of these suburbs kept out Jews just flatly. Many places across the United States kept out Mexican-Americans. I know of two towns in Nevada that actually sounded a whistle at 6 p.m. to tell Native Americans, that is American Indians, to be gone. In the book, you talk about second-generation sundown towns. What, what exactly does that mean? That's uh, the problem that still remains even after a sundown town stops being a sundown town. I submit a good example would be Ferguson, Missouri, the famous Ferguson that had all the racial problems. Ferguson briefly became a sundown town between 1940 and 1960. Uh, and among the things they did was DWB policing. Uh, that is, the police kept stopping anybody black in Ferguson, uh, giving them a ticket when possible for the most minor offenses, asking them their business, and so on. Well, by the time the issues happened in Ferguson that made it so famous a few years ago, the city was 68% black, so there's no way that it was still a sundown town. That started breaking after 1960. But it still suffered from second-generation sundown town issues. In this case, the overwhelmingly white police force that still practiced DWB, driving while black, policing. So that's one of the problems that a sundown town has even after it gives up its sundown character. And that's why I think every former sundown town, even if it now allows black families, I still think it needs to take these three steps. Uh, the three steps are, first, they need to admit it. Yes, we did do that. We did keep out African-Americans. And that's fairly easy for any of you listeners to prove. If you go to my website, there's a little paper there called How to Confirm a Sundown Town. Well, after the town has admitted it, then they need to apologize. We did this, and it was wrong, and we're sorry. And then the third step, and we don't do it anymore. And for that step, they need to say, for example, we're hiring black teachers, and we're making sure that they can live in the community, too. And once you've taken those steps, then I think you really are past your overt white supremacy, at least, and moving toward better race relations. Thank you so much. I think we'll, we'll, we'll end on that note, how to, how to make amends and move forward, right? 
James W. Lowen is the author of Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism. He also wrote the national bestseller Lies My Teacher Told Me and taught sociology at the University of Vermont for 20 years. Jim, thanks for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you're curious about which towns in your state have been identified as sundown, we'll have a link at our website, nenc.news. Now, this idea of second-generation sundown towns, we got an email from a Connecticut listener. Dennis Morgan is black, and he remembers back in college, he was in the car while his friend was driving slowly through the town of Avon, Connecticut, when he says, All of a sudden, a cop car pulls behind us. Lights come on. And I look at the back window, and I see this big, burly white guy unsnap his gun holster. He came up, looked us over asked for his license, registration, and insurance, then gave him a ticket for speeding. We all laughed because, if anything, we were going too slow. My friend did speak up and told the officer, you do realize we were in the right lane and that there were cars passing us. He wouldn't answer. He just walked away. That email came from Dennis Morgan of Connecticut. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we learn about a project honoring the lives of enslaved residents of Guilford, Connecticut. And we talk to Patricia Wilson Phineas, whose ancestors were among the first to be memorialized in the project. This is a New England News Collaborative special with America Amplified. I'm Morgan Springer. And I'm Tracy Griffith. Okay, we're back. I'm Morgan Springer. And I'm Tracy Griffith. And now we're going to talk about the ways that schools and history books too often fail to celebrate Black lives and contributions to American history. That's been on the mind of Latina Brain. She's a clinical social worker and podcaster from Shelton, Connecticut. I encourage my white counterparts to please do your education and to learn because all our lives, all we had to do was learn about white history. (laughs) There are so many parts in our social studies classes and our history classes that leave out amazing information. Why should we have to wait till February, the shortest month in the calendar, to know about black history? And half of that stuff is just, it's sugar-coated. It's not the real thing, you know? That was Latina Brame from Shelton, Connecticut. She's in a new video produced by the New England News Collaborative on young activists pushing for racial justice. You can check that out at nenc.news. The Witness Stones Project is trying to change this narrative, celebrating the lives and contributions of Black people. The project was created in Guilford, Connecticut in 2017. It came about when a social studies teacher, a counselor, and an activist got together and decided they wanted to tell true stories of slavery in the North. They developed a method where high school students researched enslaved people in the town of Guilford And then from that research, they placed physical markers, or witness stones, memorializing them. Patricia Wilson-Phineas is a state representative in Connecticut. She's also on the board of directors for the Witness Stones Project, and she joins us to talk about it. Pat, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So not only are you on the board of the Witness Stones Project, but your ancestors from the 1700s were among the first enslaved people to be memorialized in the project. Um, I believe their names were Montrose and Phyllis, and they were your sixth great-grandparents? That's correct. So what do you, what do you know about their lives and who they were? Well, 
I only know what I've learned through the Witness Stones project because that was the beauty of what Dennis Culloden did when he contacted me. And he's he the executive handed, director. He's the executive director of Witness Stones project, but he was a at the time he was a middle school teacher, and he um, contacted me because he had been tracing, unbeknownst to me, tracing my line through Montrose and Phyllis. He had gotten to my father, Lieutenant Colonel Bertram Wilson. He found an obituary. And through that obituary, he found me because I, at the time, was commissioner when my dad died. And so I got that surprise call from him. And he handed me, you know, generations of of history. Yeah. What was that like to hear these stories for the first time about your ancestors in Guilford? It was extremely exciting because it gave me a concrete connection to the past and to an understanding of how my family had developed and just how long we had been here. You know, there's this odd sensation that many black people have because we do not have or we have histories, but they're unknown and they're uncelebrated and you're not connected to them because slavery did such damage. So to find that kind of connection, to realize that my forebears not only were here, but played important roles in the development of America. You know, in the case of my fifth great-grandfather, Sharper, they were fighting for this country before it was a country, before it was America. You've talked about how finding out that you had this ancestor who was in the Revolutionary War impacted your feelings of belonging and rootedness in the country, even though those feelings were already very strong for you. Can you say more about that? Absolutely. I mean, I have never felt disconnected from America because I was raised by a patriot, you know, my father. He bred in me a sense of love and respect and honor for this country. But when I found out the reality of that connection and when I got to see the papers and understand how my family developed from the Caribbean or from Africa, we're not really sure how that happened, but from the Caribbean here and how my forebears blood was mixed with all of the patriots who fought to create this nation. It gave me a sense of ownership and belonging. Like, how dare someone say to me that I should go back to where I came from or that I wasn't an indelible part of this nation or belittle my role, not me personally, but the role of my people, of people that look like me in the development of this country How dare someone suggest that I'm less than or apart from when, were it not for people that looked like me, as a matter of fact, 5,000 of them in the Revolutionary War, you know, who fought many of them from chains to unchain our country so that we could have a free country, to understand the depth of investment in this country and to constantly be shunned by it creates a sense of outrage and a sense of, like I said, how dare you. Yeah, when we're taught about American history in schools, it's often through a very white lens. Your own history is a very clear refute of that kind of inaccurate impression of our history. Absolutely. I, I, Gil Scott Heron, I'm fond of saying, used to call it his story, not history, but his story. His being the whoever it is that's writing it or who the conqueror or whoever whoever's writing the books. It's his story. And 
that's what we've been taught. Not certainly my story, not certainly the story, <laughs> but his story. Yeah, what do you think is the impact of this incomplete and, and very white understanding of history? Well, it completely distorts what America is and who America is. It completely undermines the contributions that were made, and I might add, n never paid for, <laughs> never acknowledged, and never taught in history. So it takes one group of people and diminishes them, not because of who they were or what they failed to do, but because of his story, which discounted them. Um, and when you begin to see not just the indelible contributions, but the strength and the continued patriotism, despite the constant degradation, undercounting, and yet we still rise. We still, I, I jump all the way to my father, who fought in not just as a Tuskegee Airman, which was a fight unto itself, but then went back for Korea and Vietnam. You know, and why? It was about knowing that he had what was needed. But it was, it was such a sense of responsibility that it has stuck with me all my life. I mean, and, and I, <laughs> it was almost like when time came to, you know, I felt like I needed to do something to represent this district in a way that was different than it was being represented. I'm retired, I'm comfortable, I'm sitting in my backyard having a good time. I was, it was that sense of it needs to be done and you have what is needed to do it. And there is no other question. And I feel that so much these days because of what's going on in our country. It's like there's a role for everybody and everybody has to assume that role because we're fighting for this democracy. And just like so many men have fought and died for this democracy, how dare we not vote? How dare we not march? How dare we not fight for what these thousands and thousands of American patriots continue to die for on behalf of this country. Yeah. You not only learned at least these pieces of history about your ancestors through the Witness Stones Project, but there's now a stone honoring them and their memory in Guilford, Connecticut. And I'm wondering, what does it mean to not only learn the history, but also have this physical marker that memorializes them? The purpose of the Witness Stones Project, in part, is to mark this history concretely. It says there was a man named Moses who lived here, who worked here, who contributed to this community, who built Guilford, in part. Literally, it is an attempt to unearth this history and to mark that life and to show that that life had meaning, had existence, had depth, had contribution, and that they had children who did things and were things right down through me and now through my son, Cheo. Another underlying motivation for the Witness Stones Project is that basically by coming to terms with history, we can free ourselves to create a more just world. Do you believe that? Oh, absolutely. I absolutely believe it because one of the many problems with slavery was that it is the foundation for white supremacy. And it essentially says that some people were lesser than others. And we're still dealing with that today. When you hear people yelling, Black Lives Matter, it's because our humanity is still withheld and we are still not acknowledged as being 
equal to. With that in mind, how far do you think recognition of a more complete history that's not so centrally focused on whiteness can actually lead us toward racial justice in this country today? I think it's a very necessary beginning. And it's not just for black children. White children are disserved by not understanding what this history is. I mean, at the very least, they leave thinking they're better than somebody they're not better than. I mean, I'm glad that we have a Black History Month. I'm glad, you know. But to me, that's not appropriate because black history is American history and it ought to be celebrated every day along with all other Americans who contributed to our history, you know, so that it's not his story, but the story of America. That's how we move forward. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Patricia Wilson-Phineas is on the board of directors of the Witness Stones Project, and her sixth great-grandparents were among the first enslaved people to be memorialized in the project. She's also a state representative in Connecticut. Pat, thank you so much for sharing your family's story with us. Well, thank you very much for, for having me. It's, it's a good thing to talk about. It's important to our democracy, and I'm glad to be a part of it. Thank you. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you learned something. I'm your co-host, Tracy Griffith. And I'm Morgan Springer. This has been a New England News Collaborative special with America Amplified. This was the first in the series. Next week, join us as we explore the impact of systemic racism on housing in New England. We want to hear from you. Is your community segregated? What role does racism play? And what can we do about it? Call our comment line at 860-275-7595. Again, that's 860-275-7595. Or email us at americaamplified at nepm.org. Our program was produced by me, Morgan Springer, Lydia Brown of Vermont Public Radio, and John Dankosky of New England Public Media and America Amplified. Special thanks to our co-host, Tracy Griffith. Vanessa De La Torre is the executive editor of the New England News Collaborative, theme music by Latrell James. America Amplified and the New England News Collaborative are made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.